Matthew 7, 20, uh, verse 28 to chapter 8, verse 4. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. This is the word of God. Thanks, uh, Buns, for that reading. And to Tebza, who's left us, uh, let me publicly thank him for the prayer. Um, not only is he a life group leader and a council member, so he's one of our leaders, but the area where he really needs prayer is that he is a leader of Bible tots. Now, though, that is a tough gig, people. That is a tough gig. Those disciples are unruly. Um, but I, I was shocked. We were chatting yesterday at a council meeting. I was shocked to hear uh, that things have gotten a little easier in Bible Tots. They've upgraded the ordinary Mari biscuit for the chocolate Mari biscuits. <laughs> so we have gotten better at bribery over the years. Uh, you can't say there isn't progress in this church. Uh, we need to come to God's word, and to do that, we need to prepare ourselves in a word of prayer. So won't you join with me in a word of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, there is nothing that we need more than for your name to be hallowed, your kingdom to come, and your will to be done. And so, Father, we, we need to behold you. We need to behold your glory in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that can only happen in the power of your spirit. And so please will you help us to put aside all other distractions now. And will you give us ears to hear and will you give us eyes to see and will you cut our hearts anew. That we might be reminded that we are your children. You are our loving heavenly father. And that we might be confronted and challenged and rebuked and trained for righteousness and comforted by the wonderful news of the gospel. So please meet with us now, we pray. Please don't leave us as we are, Father. Change us for your glory and for our good. Amen. It doesn't really matter where you stand on the Christian faith. Whoever reads the Sermon on the Mount will have a strong reaction. It doesn't matter who you are. You can't read the sermon and be half-hearted, be unmoved. One way or another, it gets a visceral reaction. It stirs strong emotions in us. One Muslim teacher said that when he read the sermon, he couldn't keep back the tears. A Hindu professor said, the Jesus of Christian teaching I do not understand, but the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount I love and I am drawn to. Leo Tolstoy, famous Russian novelist, saw the sermon as teaching that gives us the meaning of life. 
And many would agree. Many would say that the sermon, that in the sermon we encounter one of the great moral philosophers of all time in a league with Confucius and Buddha and Marx. This is how so many people respond to the sermon. Jesus is sage amongst sages. He is the wisest of wise men. He's a kind of olden day Simon Sinek. Uh, His sermon was the original TED Talk. Others find in Jesus and his sermon humanity at its highest and its noblest. And so Jesus is in a league with Mahatma Gandhi uh, or Nelson Mandela, Lady Diana, Greta Thunberg, Malala Yousafzai. Jesus was the original humanist, the original philanthropist. And that's what they see, so many see in the sermon. Point is that anyone who reads the sermon responds with strong emotions. And of course, they are not the first. We are not the first. The people who first heard this sermon responded with strong emotions. We see it there in verse 28 that Panele read for us. They were astonished. Now, I don't know why uh, English words tend to be so limp sometimes. That word astonished is like a dead fish compared to the Greek original. The original word carries the idea of being attacked and knocked out. Knocked senseless. So Jesus' first hearers were a little more than astonished. They were shocked out of their minds. And their reaction was not only to the content of what he said. Given what he said, who does he think he is? Who does this man think he is? That's the nature of the shock. Who is this man? Because he is saying some outrageous things. Well, Matthew in his gospel and in the sermon itself gives us Jesus' own answer to that very question. And we are going to discover Jesus the teacher, Jesus the king, Jesus the judge, Jesus the son of God, and Jesus' friend to sinners. Those five. The teacher, the king, the judge, the son of God, and friend to sinners. We start with Jesus, the teacher. That's where our passage starts. The immediate shock, as we read in verse 29, was with the authority with which he taught. He didn't teach like the scribes, who said, thus says Rabbi X or Rabbi Y. They were the legal experts of their day, and their authority was based on case law. It was based on legal precedent. It always came, the authority always came with an appeal to legal tradition. Jesus taught without making any such appeal. may not be that shocking to us, but it certainly would have been shocking to them. He didn't teach like the scribes of his day. He referenced no one. He also didn't teach like the prophets of old. If the scribes taught, thus says the rabbi, the prophets taught, thus says the Lord. It was an infinitely higher appeal to an infinitely higher authority. But Jesus doesn't even do that. If the scribes taught, thus says the rabbi, and the prophets taught, thus says the Lord, Jesus taught, thus do I say. Twelve times in the sermon he appeals to his own authority. Twelve times. Twelve times so that we can't miss it. And on his own authority, he is pronouncing, he is giving the definitive opinion, the last word on some pretty big themes. Okay, this isn't me giving my opinion on where we put the tea station or what we call 
what used to be the cry room. This is Jesus pronouncing on who is blessed by God and who isn't. Jesus is giving the last word on who will enter the kingdom of heaven and who won't. He doesn't even bother to reference a rabbi. And where people would expect him to at least acknowledge the authority of God in his teaching. He simply appeals to his own authority. No wonder first century Jews were basically knocked out by the authority of his teaching. It would have been completely unprecedented in the history of Israel. We don't get this. It would have been unprecedented. Not even Moses taught with this kind of authority. That's Jesus the teacher. Unrivaled in authority. Secondly, Jesus the king. You remember right at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, what did he mean by that? I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. What did the law and the prophets promise that Jesus fulfilled? Well, a whole range of things. But at the, at the heart of them all, at the center of them all, the beating heart of everything that the law and the prophets promised was that God would send a king to save his people. We read in Matthew 4 that when Jesus' ministry began, he announced it like this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, the king is here. The king has arrived. For a thousand years, a thousand years, the Jewish people had been waiting for this promised king. And here comes a builder from Galilee. He says, here I am. We see him make that claim all over the sermon. Five times he explicitly mentions the kingdom and implicitly at the same time claims to be the king. Just imagine it. This promise is the great national hope. They have been waiting for a thousand years. Now, I don't know what our national hope is. Maybe it's that we would, maybe it's back to the old rainbow nation, the tired old rainbow nation, that we would actually be a rainbow nation. Now imagine... A plumber from Brackpan arrives at the union buildings and he is telling anyone who will listen, I am the answer to all your hopes and dreams. I am the rainbow nation. To be a short left to Vescopies. Jesus of Nazareth claims to fulfill the promises and the hopes of the entire nation of Israel. A thousand years. He says, I'm the one you've been waiting for. No wonder they were shocked. But it's about to get worse. Thirdly, Jesus the judge. Jews were very clear that at the end of time, Yahweh himself will open the books and he will judge all nations. All of humanity will be judged. The day of judgment is coming and Yahweh himself will preside. He will preside. They spoke about that day. It was shorthand that they used to describe the day of the Lord. Judgment day. The day of Yahweh. But if you remember back to last week, Jesus speaks about this judgment day in no uncertain terms at the end of his sermon. Listen to what he said last week. It's just a few verses back. 7 verse 22. On that day, there it is, 
on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There it is, verse 22. That day, judgment day, the day of Yahweh. Now Jesus says many things about that day just in those few verses. The first thing he says about that day is that he will hear the evidence. Verse 22. Many will say to me. The second thing he says is that he will pass the verdict. Verse 23. I will declare to them. The third thing he says is that he himself is the verdict. Verse 23 again. I will declare to them, I never knew you. In other words, innocence or guilt is determined on the basis of our relationship to Jesus. He is the verdict. Fourth thing he has to say. He is the one who passes the sentence. And in fact, once again, he is the sentence. Verse 23. Depart from me. Jesus passes the sentence and the sentence is banishment from his presence. Hell is life apart from Jesus. On that day, on the day when God judges the world, Jesus is the one who will hear the evidence, declare the verdict, and pass the sentence. Imagine a builder from Galilee, a plumber from Brackpan, claiming to be the judge of all mankind at the end of history. No wonder they were shocked out of their minds. Fourthly, Jesus, the Son of God. We've just been saying that Jesus will take on the divine role, the role that was exclusive to Yahweh. It was the day of Yahweh. Judgment Day. He's going to take on that role. That on its own suggests this is no mere man. This is no mere prophet. This is no mere rabbi. No mere wise man. That on its own. That role of divine judgment. But there's more. Uh, John Stott, who was very helpful to me as I grappled with this passage, he points out that all through the sermon, when Jesus is talking with his disciples about God, he refers to your father. Very occasionally he refers to our father, but mostly it's your father, your father. Now why does he not speak about our father in every instance? Why not? Because his disciples are also children of God, but in a very different way. There is a crucial distinction. We are sons and daughters by grace. He is a son by nature. We are children by adoption. He is the only begotten Son of the Father from all eternity. Jesus is the Son of God in a unique way. We see that in the last beatitude. So if you turn back to the beginning of the sermon, chapter 5, we'll read there from verse 11. The very last beatitude. Chapter 5, verse 11, it reads as follows. Blessed are you, his disciples, 
when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. On my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now let's just, let's just consider this together. The prophets suffered for their faithfulness to God. Jesus puts his disciples in the place of the prophets. He says to his disciples, you are going to be blessed. You can rejoice because you are like the prophets who suffered for their faithfulness to God. Now, who does he put in the place of God? Who were his disciples suffering for? What place is he giving to himself? He says there, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He puts his disciples in the place of the prophets. He puts himself in the place of Yahweh. The prophets suffered for their faithfulness to Yahweh. You will suffer for your faithfulness to me. Let's go back to Judgment Day, Matthew 7. Who will enter the kingdom of heaven? You remember from last week, verse 21, the one who does the will of my father. Whose house will stand on Judgment Day? Verse 24, the one who hears the words of Jesus and puts them into practice. Jesus equates his own words with the will of our Heavenly Father. He says the two are one. The message of this sermon is clear. Jesus is the Son of God. If he is teacher of all teachers, king of all kings, judge of all judges, and the Son of God himself, which is mind-blowing enough. Perhaps the most extraordinary message of the sermon is that he is also a friend to sinners. And we are reminded of that reality in the passage that Bonelli read for us. Let me just read it again. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished, knocked out by his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. What is the first, the very first thing that happens when Jesus has finished teaching his great sermon on the mount and comes down? What's the very first thing that happens? Here it is. He encounters a leper. Why is that significant? Lepers in those days were the walking dead. They were the walking dead physically, socially, and religiously. Let me just read to you what it meant to be a leper from Leviticus 13. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it for you. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. 
This is a disease that killed your place in the community long before it killed your body. It killed any chance of love or belonging or acceptance. You withered away relationally while you waited for your body to die. It's no surprise that leprosy became the great symbol of sin. Because sin does exactly the same thing. You wither away relationally while you wait for your body to die. Sin isolates us from God. Sin isolates us from one another. Sin ends in death. As one commentator says of leprosy, Never has there been a physical condition that so illustrated the spiritual condition of humankind. If you want to know what sin looks like, look at the picture of the leper in the scriptures. That's what our spiritual condition is. That's leprosy. That's the burden this leper was bearing as he approached Jesus. What do we see in how he approached? What do we see in this leper? What can we learn from him? Firstly, great courage. He never ever should have done what he did. He was supposed to keep his distance from the ordinary Jew, let alone a prominent rabbi. Remember the crowds following Jesus were not senseless by his teaching. They have one question ringing in their ears. Who is this man? Seems this leper has the answer. He approaches Jesus with absolute poverty of spirit. 8 verse 2, he knelt down. It's actually the Greek word for worship. He worshipped. He came with great courage, but also with deep humility and a profound posture of worship. He also comes with great faith. If you are willing, you can make me clean. You can make me clean. This man doesn't doubt Jesus' power for one moment. It's not a question of, are you able? It's a question of, are you willing? Because if you are willing, you can make me clean. Here, Jesus matches his outrageous words with an outrageous deed. Verse 3, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Now, I don't think we have even the vaguest clue of the social taboo that was involved in what Jesus did. We just don't understand how outrageous, to use the word again, what he did was. For us it might be, for middle class people, and shame on us, but it might be something like us inviting a group, a crowd of homeless drunkards to our daughter's wedding. Okay? They hug the bride as she enters the church. They embrace her. They sit in the front row of the service. They sit at the main table during the meal. It's that kind of social taboo. If we are honest, that doesn't evoke a happy feeling in us, that thought. If we're honest. It's something you and I would never ever consider doing, if we're honest. And yet this is the kind of thing Jesus does. In that culture, contact with lepers evoked fear and disgust in people. The kind of reaction we would feel just at the thought of what I've just described. 
at our daughter's wedding. You avoided lepers like the plague, literally. If you touched a leper, you would be ceremonially unclean. Their social separation was contagious. It would become your social separation. You would catch their alienation from God and from his people. You would catch it if you came into contact with them. And so you just wouldn't even dream of doing this. You wouldn't come within 20 meters of a leper, let alone touch them. But Jesus stretches out his hand and touches the man. You see, where where fear and disgust rises in us, he is drawn to the sinner. He's drawn to the sinner. He's drawn to the unworthy. He's drawn to the alienated, the filthy. He, He doesn't approach out of some grinding sense of duty. He's drawn, he's attracted to sinners. It's extraordinary. He gives the crowds yet another shock. He proves himself both willing and able. I am willing. Brothers and sisters, do we, do, we, do we appreciate the glory in those words? I am willing. Be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. The fact that he could cleanse a leper just by touch would have shocked the people. The fact that he was willing to do it would have shocked them even more. Perhaps the most shocking of all are the instructions that follow. Go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a witness to them. Jesus is pointing out that he can do what the law of Moses could never do. He can heal the sinner. He brings the sinner back into the presence of God. Instead of keeping his distance, he reaches towards. He comes as close as he can. He touches the untouchable. And instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the leper is made clean. The power of sin is nothing compared to the power of his purity. By the intimacy, by the closeness, by the proximity, by the touch, by the power of divine love, Instead of Jesus catching the condition of sin, the sinner catches the condition of his righteousness. The law could never do that. The law can only diagnose. The law can only stand at a distance and shout, unclean, unclean. But Jesus comes close. He touches. He fulfills the law. He does what the law was always intended to do but couldn't, not because of some default with the law, but because of human sin. Because we manipulate and reject and pervert the law. And so this miracle is a witness. This miracle answers the question, who is this man? Jesus the teacher. The king, the judge, the son of God himself. And yet the one who uses all of that power and privilege and status and he pours it out for sinners like us. 
teacher, king, judge, the son of God, and a friend to sinners. Matthew reminds us, he reminded us way back in chapter 1. That's what his name means. His name means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. Because he has come to save his people from their sin. That's where the Sermon on the Mount began. He came to bless the poor in spirit, the spiritually destitute, the spiritual leper, the people outside the camp, the people who know they have nothing to give to God, the people who know they have nothing to give to God. Like this leper. He came to bless us and give us the keys to the kingdom. He is a friend to sinners, like you and like me. He's a friend to sinners. If that's who he is, how do we respond to him? I think we can just take the two options that are right there in the text for us. Just focus on those two options. Two possible responses. First, we could be like the crowds, astounded, shocked out of our minds that Jesus could make such outrageous claims. We could for a while in that fever of the initial excitement that comes with discovering a teacher who really has an interesting take on life, we could follow him. We could subscribe to the podcast, listen to the back episodes, smash the like button. We are followers. But then life happens. The novelty wears off. The cares of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth creep in and crowd in. And that initial excitement is choked. Someone sends me a link to another teacher. And here's the latest thing. Jesus was an interesting distraction for a while, but you know, it's hard to keep that kind of momentum going. That's the crowd. Are we one of the crowd? It's a question we have to ask ourselves. Is that how we are responding? Brothers and sisters, we want to be more like the leper. What kind of faith is this? Where you choose the option to be more like the leper. We want to acknowledge who we are. And we want to acknowledge who Jesus is. The teacher, the king, the judge, the son of God himself, but also at the very same time, with all of that privilege and power, a friend to sinners like us. So we can approach him in an attitude of worship and trust. If we come to him that way with nothing but our poverty of spirit, with nothing but our emptiness, our alienation, our filth, he will cleanse us. He is willing. He is willing. He will cleanse us. He will bless us. He will welcome us into the kingdom. In fact, he pursues us in our filth. He's drawn to us. He's attracted to wretched sinners like us. He will give us everything once he's embraced us and brought us into the kingdom and cleansed us. He'll give us everything we need to live as citizens of the kingdom. More than that, to be ambassadors for the king. Now, if you want to know what life in the kingdom 
looks like, what the life of an ambassador for the king looks like, just go back to the beginning of the sermon and read it again. That's life in the kingdom. That's what the sermon is. He's describing life in the kingdom and calling us to life in the kingdom. That's the Sermon on the Mount. So the question is, how are we responding? Because that's the call of the sermon. Come and live in the kingdom. And this is what it means. How are we responding to that call? You've heard the sermon. Granted, it's taken three years. So you can't ever complain, hey? About 30 minutes. You've heard the sermon. You've seen the witness of the miracle. How are you responding? Because we have to make a choice. Four times at the end of the sermon, he calls us to make a choice. Make a choice. C.S. Lewis describes that choice like this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. There it is. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God and worship him. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about this being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We have to choose. Let's pray. Our Father, all we have is thanksgiving. All we can do is thank you for your Son. He has given us such a very clear choice. He has presented himself as teacher, king, judge, and your eternal son. As all of those things, he comes close enough to touch the unclean, to touch sinners like us. Help us, Father. Help us by your spirit to respond to him as we should. Help us to trust him, to worship him, to live for him. In every area of our lives. It's only in his name that we can even bring this prayer to you. And so we do. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.